Welcome to the J. Kim Show, Hong Kong's first dedicated podcast on investing in Asia. It's no secret that Asia is home to some of the most dynamic, innovative, and game-changing companies in the world. Join us as we survey the land to find the most profitable investment opportunities that will allow you to capitalize off this next wave of wealth creation. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced with the goal of providing actionable insights with every single episode. And now, onto the show. Today's show guest is Meb Faber. Meb is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Cambria Investment Management. He's also the host of the Meb Faber Show podcast, which is one of my personal favorite investing podcasts out there. He's also a frequent speaker and writer on investment strategies, and he's been featured in Barron's, The New York Times, and The New Yorker. Meb's a quant, so his investing style tends to be a little bit more on the technical side, but we have a pretty engaging conversation, which I'm sure you'll find interesting nonetheless. Please enjoy. Meb, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate having you on. Great to be here. So for the audience tuning in, Meb is, uh, is uh, based in the States. He's, uh, he's pretty active online. He's got a great blog and a great podcast. Uh, now I'm a fellow podcaster, so I appreciate uh, the work that you do there. And he's also an, an ACC guy. So I'm a Tar Heel. He's a Cavalier. Uh, so we have a little bit in common, and I, I, uh, I appreciate some of the uh, references you make to, uh, to that part of the world. Anyway, maybe you could give us a little better background of yourself and how you got into investing. Yeah, that's a pretty good start. You know, grew up um, a little bit in North Carolina, a little bit in um, Colorado. So did spend plenty of time in, on Franklin Street and around uh, okay. Chapel Hill. I love it there. Um, ACC in general, college basketball. Uh, but yeah, I went to Virginia. So I was a, I was a biotech engineer guy. Um, started out in the biotech world, equity, equity uh, analyst for a biotech mutual fund before gravitating a little more towards uh, the quant side of the business for a CTA firm, and then eventually starting Cambria uh, in 2006. We started managing money in 2007, so it's been about uh, 10 years in, and now we've got about 10 ETFs, um, separate account business, private funds, and it's all quant-based, all rules-based, everything from stocks to bonds, global macro, and everything in between. We just came out with our sixth book, although this one doesn't really count as my book because I was just the editor, uh, but the best investment writing. So. Um, yeah, that's the, that's the quick intro. Yeah. Awesome. We'll definitely talk about that, uh, in a, in a little bit. I just wanted to, uh, take a step back and, and you said you started off as a biotech analyst, um, mm-hmm. at a, at a long way, like a mutual fund, right? So mm-hmm. it's interesting. I want to hear about your progression from that to going into something that's more, uh, quant and less sort of value based. Cause I, I feel like so, I mean, the big uh, sort of religion type discussion that often happens for investors is obviously value versus everything else. Um, and there's many ways to make money in the market. We all know that. So how did your progression happen? You know, it's um, like most, a lot of it's accidental. Uh, the part, part of the um, concept was, you know, it, it was late 90s, pretty fun time in biotech, but also pretty interesting time in, in investing because the internet bubble, uh, stock market's been going up for the, the, the late 90s boom. Um, so you had a lot of kind of confluence forces going on in both worlds. And, and I had a, had an interest in investing ever since a child. So um, I thought, thought about taking a year off before going back for, for getting a PhD uh, to make some money. 
and have the opportunity to kind of marry the two disciplines to do both biotech and, and study a lot of these companies and con um, you know concepts in the applied world rather than just theoretical. And so I uh, did it for a year and I, I actually took grad school at night uh, down the road at John Hopkins. So um, did both, but uh, that one year became two and, and a lot of just, you know, pleasant accidents or whatever it may have been, lived in San Francisco for a little while as, as well as Lake Tahoe. Um, and uh, yeah, it just, it just kind of those little decisions you make when you're younger that end up being uh, lifelong decisions 10 years later. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I want to, if you could, for the, for some of the audience members, uh, maybe if you could, it's, it's not easy to do in such a short amount of time, but if you could unpack sort of quant, what, 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 what is a quant, quantitative, you know, strategy? What is, you know, smart beta is one of these buzzwords, not buzzwords, but it's a, it's a word that even within the investing realm, you know, I'm a long short guy. So even even myself, you know, you hear that word being thrown around, but I don't think a lot of people actually know what factor investing is or what smart beta is. So maybe if you could give us a quick overview of that. Yeah, you know, I mean, quant quant's anything rules based. Uh, it means it's objective. So we're not waking up today and deciding to go long Tesla and short Amazon or whatever it may be, but but meaning there's rules ba um, baked in. And one of the reasons that I was probably drawn to that from a you know early age was one. Um, my experience working for the fund, a long only shop where whether or not you could pick the relative merits of a biotech company in the late 90s versus, um, you know, a company that was didn't have as much chance for success didn't really matter when they all went down 50 to 80 percent. Right. So thinking about um, other sort of concepts and rules and, and, and macro sort of ideas as well um, to be able to implement to, to kind of protect was, was probably the genesis, but also for my own personal trading, you know, I mean, I made all the mistakes that every individual probably makes, thankfully, in my in my early years with a, with a lot less money. Um, but I certainly was overconfident, would take way too much risk if given to me, um, you know, on and on all the list of behavioral biases, I, I had them all. So the ability to, um, you know, make that somewhat of a uh, non emotional process was was important to me. And, you know, it, it it takes a while, and I think a lot of people have to learn those lessons um, in person rather than on paper. It's tough to really convey the emotional side of investing until you go through it. So, uh, you know, that's kind of what ended up taking me to that area. But but there's a million ways to to be a good investor or make money in markets, and plenty of people do it um, just fine subjectively or fundamentally or whatever it may be. Um, quant just resonated with me the most. So quant is essentially using sort of data, like data backed and, and creating rules uh, to hopefully take the emotion out of it. it. It doesn't mean that they're good rules. So a good example is the most classic index, the market, right? The, a market cap weighted index on U.S. stocks, for example. S&P 500 is something like that. But where you simply invest in the biggest companies by size and, and size being price times shares outstanding. That's not particularly a good way to invest. I mean, sorry, it's not the optimal way to invest. It's not a bad way to invest. Um, and so, you know, we, we often joke, we did a, a speech at, at UCLA recently where we talked about the hamburger index. And we said, you know, indexing meant something in the 70s. When, when John Bogle started the first indexes, they were all market cap weighted, low cost, low turnover. And it's a perfectly fine first way to invest. But over the years, the term has been somewhat polluted 
Uh, you mentioned smart beta earlier, but really people can come up with almost any sort of rules-based system. An example we gave was, well, you could come up with a passive index fund that sorts CEOs, whether they like hamburgers or cheeseburgers. And then you would weight the companies in the index based on how many cheeseburgers they ate per year. And then you charge 2% a year for that. That's a passive index. And I think that's a lot of what the media gets wrong about this whole active versus passive debate and, and everything that's going on is that, you know, that's a nonsensical investment approach and you're charging a ton for it. It's a terrible way to invest. Um, so the, the whole just kind of rules-based objective in and of itself doesn't mean it's a good investing strategy. It just means that, uh, you know, there, there are some code, there is some code or rules behind it for better or for worse. I, I actually wanted to ask a question myself. Um, there, I've, I've read some articles, not any sort of research, data, uh, research papers, but articles saying that market participation has changed uh, in, in the last handful of years where it's uh, now up to 80% dominated by quant algo high frequency trading. Is that accurate, would you say? I don't, I don't know the source of what you're referring to. I mean, there's a lot of commentary. Um, you know, part of it comes back to me is, does it matter? What's the point? Who cares? Um, and, and, you know, great example, when you look at the whole active-passive sort of rules-based algos or not, is that, and part of this is kind of conflating two, two different concepts, one being high-frequency trading. Um, but Vanguard, for example, most famous indexer on the planet, the, the CEO literally invented index funds. Well, they run more active mutual funds than they do passive. You know, a lot of people don't know that. A third of their assets are inactive strategies. And so the term, while it might have meant something 30 years ago, is, is meaningless now. Um, and so a lot of the, the concepts that the media talks about, I mean, you look at the media talking about ETFs being a very destruct, destructive force. And I laugh at that because ETFs have one-fifth of the assets as mutual funds do. Mm. So, and then the percent ownership in ETFs globally is like, of institutions is like 1%. So the media, a lot of these concepts of whether it's algorithmic trading or high frequency or active passive, I think it's a very shallow investigation in many cases. Um, but, uh, but in general markets will adjust. And you know, if, if there's a company out there that's trading for way less than intrinsic value, whether it's an index that picks up on it or whether it's you know, a hedge fund manager, someone will eventually arbitrage that away because people like make money and don't like losing money. So uh, the market simply will get more efficient over time. So what are some of the uh, cognitive biases that us human beings uh, are subject to and maybe some of the ones that you yourself uh, caught yourself doing time and time again that led you down this path to sort of uh, creating your own fund that's more rules-based? I think it's illustrative to look at probably my, my worst trade ever, um, which <laughs> was in my early 20s, it was an options trade on a biotech company. And so I'd put on a either straddle or strangle, meaning buying um, calls and puts in the, in the anticipation of a large market move one way. And it was a company that uh, had a drug uh, coming in, trial results coming out, and so the thesis was you could buy the strangle and the volatility would expand over the coming weeks as every portfolio manager on the planet would probably want to hedge this position. And so sure enough, by the time the uh, results came out, the position had already doubled. So a reasonable trader probably would have took some chips off the table. And I had it biased towards non-approval 
the drug ended up getting approved. And so the trade was still in the money. Um, and so the bias already, which was probably this one just being greedy, um, <laughs> that I'm going to let it run a few more days. And uh, because, um, you know, the, the price was in general moving in my favor. And sure enough, the company pre-announced earnings early for no reason. Stock went back down to the strike level, end up losing all your money. And so um, it's a good example of a number of things. One, taking on way too much risk, uh, meaning that the trade size is way too large relative to my account balance or what, mm -hmm. what I should be risking on any one position or trade. Um, two, being overconfident in knowing all the possible outcomes. You know, by no means is that a black swan. That's something that's probably happened many, many times in history where mm -hmm. uh, a normal market event um, simply causes the stock to move, but it wasn't something in my thesis would, would even have uh, been considered. I was so focused on the drug trial approval or not. Uh, and so you learn a number of lessons there. And in general, people, and as they lose money, will get riskier. You see this at the poker table. They call it going on tilt, yep. um, where they get riskier and riskier as, as they have uh, more losses and lose more. Um, those are just a handful of them, but I, I, you could probably open up the, the dictionary of behavioral biases. I probably have, you know, 90% of them. Yeah. Um, so speaking of biases, you, here's something else that you talk about often is uh, home country bias. And I know that that's a, that's an area that you've studied, uh, quite a bit and put out some good work on. And, you know, people think the U S uh, is, is home has a has a, a, a large home country bias, but that's that's actually the case for everywhere. And I, I'm here in Hong Kong, and Hong Kong investors are, are just as bad, you know. So, um, what can you what can you say about home country bias, and, and what are some ways that you can get around that? The, the concept of home country bias is is the simple takeaway is that people invest more in what they know, and you know the example. And this is Vanguard research. If you look at the global market portfolio, say just stocks. Mm -hmm. uh, if you invest in the global market portfolio by size, the same as you would in the U.S., where you'd invest most in Apple and Amazon and Walmart, et cetera, um, the U.S. is about half the global total. But in the U.S., investors invest around 70% of their equity allocation in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And that's the same everywhere else. You mentioned Hong Kong, but it's also true in Italy, uh, Australia, everywhere else where people invest a lot more in their own market. Um, and a lot of that's just comfort. But usually it's a pretty terrible idea. Uh, it's terrible for two reasons. One, you have very large concentration, may or may not be justified, but very large concentration, and that's a very active bet. It may be a good bet, but, but in general with market cap indexes, it's usually a bad bet. And so the reason being is that a lot of the countries get overweighted by value. And so the U.S. right now, we calculate as one of the most expensive countries in the world. Mm -hmm. And the average investor putting 70% in the U.S. here is making a huge bet on U.S. equities to continue to outperform. Um, and so we say a starting point is the global market portfolio. And you can deviate from that, and that's fine, but that's where you should begin. Um, you know, and another example of that is that uh, in, in the 80s, Japan was the largest market cap weighted country in the world, and it was the largest asset bubble we've ever seen in equities. Um, and it hit almost, I think, half the world market cap. So this bias, but also it applies to sectors. If you look at the U.S. demographics, by for example, and do it by states, you know certain states that have um, exposure to certain industries mm. often will overweight those industries. And whether it's through a pension plan, and you ask people, say from Enron, if that was a good example, if you work at a company, put all your assets in that same stock, also example of that sort of bias. <laughs> so um, 
you know, the, you can find examples of people that got rich or it made, made a lot of sense, but more often than not, it's a uncompensated bet that doesn't really make any sense. Yeah, that's a perfect example, actually, because uh, I myself was pr- subject to that twice. Uh, I, I worked for Lehman for a while, mm-hmm. and then after that, I came here to Hong Kong, and I worked for Bear Stearns. And both times, oh, I, was, I was long uh, the company stock way more than I should be. And uh, yeah, I learned that yeah, one. You have a knack for picking these. Maybe you should start shorting the company stock when you go work there. Funny story is after that, I spent a little bit, uh, the, the team at Bear Stearns ended up going over to a China Construction Bank, which is like the second largest bank in the world. So I was like, if I can bankrupt this one, then I definitely have something yeah, going for me. Superpowers. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay, so, so let's talk about now um, strategies for just the little guy, you know, and this might be, one of the reasons why, uh, well, maybe you could say what, like, what led you to starting Cambria and, and your own sort of solution to this sort of thing. I, I think a lot of uh, investment uh, news and recommendations and this sort of thing out there are meant for large institutions. And it doesn't really help the, the, the guy, the regular average guy that wants to protect his assets. So what solutions uh, do you have for that? There's a lot of good choices out there. We mentioned Vanguard earlier. There's also an extreme amount of junk um, and predatory behavior. And so the, the concept of Cambria was we wanted to launch strategies that we wanted to invest our money in. And it's something like of mutual funds on, on some level, it's like 50 to 80% of these fund managers have nothing invested in, these own, in their own funds. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's no skin in the game. The incentives are skewed. So we wanted to invest in uh, strategies that we want to put our own money into. I have 100% of my net worth and our funds and strategies. Um, and so we wanted to launch funds that either we thought we could do better uh, or that didn't exist, or in some cases we thought we could do cheaper than, than anyone else had out there. Um, and so some are in equities, some are in asset allocation, some are in tactical and macro. But in general, th- those are kind of the criteria. Um, lastly, being does anyone actually want it? You know, there's some ideas we think are fantastic, but no one really cares. Right. Uh, but that, that's a little hard to judge, too, because a lot of times um, that tends to be cyclical. You know, what, what turn is in favor. A lot of people bought what they wish they had bought, you know, over the past few years. So it's um, th- that was kind of the genesis. And it's it's we've have 10 funds now. Uh, we launched a digital offering and, you know, have a handful of more funds filed. But um, that's, that's kind of the thesis, is looking for funds or strategies that don't exist uh, that we think we can offer that, that um, do it somehow better or cheaper in some way. What are your current views sort of globally outside? I mean, you look, you look at uh, markets globally, obviously, to get away from that home country bias. What, do you think, what are your thoughts globally about Asia in particular? Uh, any thoughts there? Our, our two, um, if you look at our two... Uh, investment approaches that go back over, say, 100 years. Uh, that's value and momentum and trend. And almost every approach we have has one of those or, or combination of both as fundamental anchors as to how they approach the world. So our largest fund is a value fund, deep value fund that invests in the 25% cheapest countries in the world based on long-term PE ratios called global value. And so if you look at the world today on a valuation perspective, there's good and there's bad news. The bad news the U.S. is one of the most expensive markets in the world. If you look at, say, Schiller 10-year P.E. ratios, um, you know, it's trading at a value of around 30. Average historically is around 17. And in low inflation environments, around 21. So expensive, but not as, as expensive as it was in the late 90s mm-hmm. when it hit 45. 
which is, you know, a real true bubble. And we've seen markets in the 40s and 60s, even in the past decade with India and China. Um, and then Japan's the highest we've ever seen when it hit a value right around 95. And so the U.S. is expensive, but all that means is low single-digit returns. Um, the good news is a lot of the rest of the countries around the world are reasonably priced to downright cheap to a, ba- a bucket of them being extremely cheap. Um, and in general, uh, foreign developed is reasonable. Foreign emerging is really cheap. Uh, and then this bucket of super cheap countries trades at a P.E. ratio of around 10. Um, that's a lot of, ironically, even though that emerging markets are much cheaper, the basket of that uh, bucket is, is a mix of developed and emerging. Mm-hmm. So you have a handful of uh, European countries, a lot of the countries that never really recovered from the global financial crisis, a lot of Eastern Europe, emerging Europe, of course, the, the, what people label the pigs, Portugal, Italy, Spain, and Greece, um, throw in a little Russia and Brazil as well. As far as Asia, there's only really a couple countries that are sort of on the um, cheaper side. I think I, I know Singapore mm-hmm. is one. Uh, we used to own China. Um, but uh, because of appreciation, it, it sort of came out of this bucket. But even in the middle bucket, it, uh, most of the comp- countries are reasonably priced. Uh, so it's, it's, and we use a number of valuation indicators. It's not just uh, price earnings. But uh, the good news is most of the, the rest of the world is a lot cheaper than the U.S. is. Right. So with the U.S. market being at so expensive right now, um, what, if, what, are your, what are your short-term thoughts? What might bring this bull market to an end? Our, our favorite um, lens to, to look through the world is, is both value and trend. And so if you chop the U.S. bucket, for example, and this, this applies everywhere, into two sides, cheap and expensive, and then uptrend and downtrend, mm-hmm. historically the best results come from cheap uptrend, which makes sense. The worst is expensive downtrend. Uh, and interestingly enough, the second best quartile is – expensive in an uptrend, which is what the U.S. is, mm. right? The trend has been up. It's been one of the strongest, most low volatility trends, um, you know, we've seen in my lifetime. And so uh, you've had this uh, outperformance of the U.S. since the global financial crisis versus foreign markets. Um, U.S. versus foreign, historically, it's a coin flip. It's 50-50. Uh, but the U.S. has outperformed, been the number one performing market until about a year or so ago. Uh, you start to see the momentum shift. And really, a lot of these foreign countries, initially, it was the really cheap stuff. So Russia and Brazil uh, had monster returns last year. And then this year, it's almost everything else, but including, uh, you know, a lot of countries are having really strong returns this year. Um, and you're starting to see them rebound. So we've kind of, our thesis of a lot of the cheap countries in the rest of the world will start to outperform the U.S. has finally come to fruition, finally, in the last couple of years. We've been talking about this since we put out our book in 2014. Um, on the topic called global value, mm. but uh, but the, the the valuation is a kind of a yellow flashing light for the U.S., but it doesn't really become a a, a hard stop red light until the trend rolls over. Um, so I, this is unintentional, but this painting behind me is, is an old Western painting by Bev Doolittle, which has a bear crouching in the woods. You can't really see it. So that's <laughs> that's kind of the U.S. right now, right? It's ready to pounce. It's, but it's not there yet. The trend is still up. So um, at some point, uh, it'll roll over, and, and that's probably the, the sign to reduce risk and, and exit um, some more of the uh, U.S. equity exposure. Yeah, I guess from a momentum perspective, the, a lot of gains are made at, at that expensive uptrend period where... The bubbles, know, that's the fun part, right? That finally um, melt up. You know, yeah. a lot of people don't talk about it. My buddy Steve Sugaru talks a lot about it, where 
you have these possibilities at the end of bubbles where kind of everyone is rushing in uh, and you can have the parabolic, you know, moves up. The challenge, of course, is, is, is when do you get off that and it becomes kind of the musical chairs. And that's a great example of being a quant and having a rules-based exit. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you'll simply write it up probably and all the way down. We wrote a paper called Learning to Love Investment Bubbles. What if Sir Isaac Newton was a trend follower? You can download for free on our website that uh, takes a lot of, a lot of historical bubbles and it's pretty pretty fun to read. Interesting. Um, well, thanks for your uh, views on the market and this sort of thing. Um, you know, you I, I don't know how you produce so much content, uh, but like you said, you have six books now, now uh, what, 10 ETFs. Um, and I heard on your podcast that you just recently had a baby. So congrats on that. I did. Um, Thank you. Let's uh, let's talk about what, uh, your latest book, uh, Best Investment Writing. And uh, and what, what's that all about? So, you know, one of the common themes I struggle with is curation, you know, the, the amount of news and investment news, but not even that, but, but people are just inundated with a fire hose of information every day. I mean, forget about politics, but just investment news in general. And so, you know, we started a, a research portal called the idea farm years ago that was trying to solve this for professional researchers. And then I, I started doing an annual post where I just asked my friends and say, what's the best thing you wrote or read this year? And try to compile it every year around Christmas time to be a resource. And then eventually publishers said, Meb, why wouldn't you just cobble this together and we could do it as an annual book? And I said, I'd love to. And so this was kind of the first volume, uh, first try at this. And so there's about 32 short essays, um, some of the best writing. I think some of them, you could kind of read it uh, one chapter at a time. You don't have to sit down and read it all in, in one sitting, but a really fun kind of review of pieces that are timely, but also with a lean lean toward being timeless, you know, so lessons that may apply today, but that you could, um, you know, look back on 10 years from now and and with some interest as well. So hopefully it comes out every year in the first quarter. We'll look to do another one uh, again in in six months or so. Um, But yeah, let me... Let me know what you think. Read, listeners, if you, uh, if you read it, let me know what you think. We'd love to hear some feedback. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, with regards to your, your other handful of books, was there, was there one that, uh, uh, it's like picking favorite children, but is there one that, that you are most proud about or one that you would most highly recommend to, to someone that's getting in? Two things. The first is always kind of the baby, you know, the the the, the first child. Uh, so the Ivy portfolio was was our first book, and and I, I think it um, holds a special spot for not only us but a lot of readers as well. Um, however, uh, if anyone has made it through this interview this far, uh, <laughs> and you go to we've given away over a hundred thousand books. So if you go to freebook.mebfaber.com, we have a copy of Global Asset Allocation you can download which is probably one that applies to the, the, the broadest audience thinking about how to put it all together. Uh, so you can download a PDF of that. Um, and that's a fun short read. That's probably the highest rated of our six books, but all are, you know, four, four and a half stars, five stars. But um, those two are great. But I, I have, it, it depend, depends on my mood. I, I like some better than others sometimes. But th- those two in particular are great, great reads. Yeah, thanks for that. We'll uh, get that linked up on the show notes. I actually like to invest with the house. Uh, oh, it's a just, fun one. Yeah, the, the cover the cover art was designed in Transylvania. Interesting fact. Really? 
Wow, mm-hmm. that's interesting. That is a fun fact. Um, what what other uh, exciting things are you working on these days other than probably another book or another ETF? Watch? We have two white papers coming out in the next week or two, so they'll probably be out by the time this is up. Um, one is on tail risk and thinking about asymmetric outcomes to the downside in, in equities. We have a fund that does it, but it's a little research summary. Uh, the second will be on tax efficiency, so something that mm-hmm. probably – no one has any interest in um, that is focusing on basically you should never own dividends in a taxable account and in a much better way of approaching U.S. equity investing through a value lens but ignoring dividends and avoiding them. That's actually a really fun paper that I'm pretty sure no one will read but has large implications. You know, the boring stuff of fees and taxes have such a huge impact on returns, but it's not the sexy part. Uh, so keep an eye out for those. And if they've come out by the time this interview, we'll post some links. But um, those those will have a fun component as well. Uh, so yeah, that's, it's summertime, so it's a little slow. But uh, those, those will hopefully be at, out in the next quarter. No, that's awesome. Um, I had a quick question as well, uh, mm-hmm. kind of a side note. And I just wanted to get your thoughts since you're sort of quite knowledgeable in this space. There's a lot of investors talking about these robo-advisors, better uh, wealth front, these types of guys. Um, what are your thoughts overall on robo-advisors? In general, I think the automated investment solutions, and I hate to call them, they're more robo-allocators. Uh, it's a wonderful solution. The, the challenge, of course, and they all do the same thing, and that's not a bad thing. It's good. It's low cost, diversified asset allocation, tax efficient. You know, Vanguard is by far the biggest, then Schwab, then Betterment, then Wealthfront. Um, the challenge, of course, is that if and when the next bear market comes, we may never have one again, but history, if, if that's the case, we probably will. Um, it, it's hard to behave. And so maybe having a human element that's in between you and, and your worst impulses is, is important. So some of them come with kind of call center financial advisors. Some don't come with any. Uh, so the, the value of a financial advisor, I think, really shines most in those sort of markets. Um, so we'll see. It, it'll be interesting to see how they play out in the next big bear uh, if we have one. But in general, I think every advisor will implement the technology at some point. We did it um, almost a year ago, and so we have a solution as well. It's quite a bit different, though. Um, and uh, I think everyone will, will implement the automated side of it. Uh, I think the, the best model will be the human-assisted sort of automated investment process. Um, that way you still have someone to talk to and, and help you out when times get tough. Awesome. Well, Meb, we appreciate the time. You've got uh, a wealth of resources that are available for our audience uh, between your books and your website, your podcast, which is great. Um, where's the best place that our audience can uh, find you, follow you, connect with you, maybe learn a little bit more about what you're working on? Yeah, you know, you type my name into Google, you'll get just about anything. But my blog, Meb Faber, has got a lot of the links for white papers, uh, podcasts, Cambria Investments or Cambria Funds are the, uh, you know, my work addresses. Twitter is just my name. Um, And uh, yeah, those are the best spots. Awesome. Well, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. The audience appreciates you. Thanks. All right. Take care. hope you enjoyed today's episode. All of the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next exciting episode of The J. Kim Show. As always, I'd love to hear your questions, comments, or future guest suggestions. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer, that's J-A-Y 
K-I-M-M-E-R. See you in the next episode.